everyone. This is your host, Trace McDonald, TMAC Talks. I want to welcome my guest today that has attended the St. Louis University earning a Juris Doctorate. She's also attended the Washington State University earning a Master's in Health Policy and Administration. Let me tell you, you would want her on your side. Please welcome Attorney Jolene Taft. Thank you, Tracy. Thanks for having me today. Well, we are glad to have you, Jolene. Jolene, has had an extensive career timeline. She has worked for the Missouri Public Defender's Office for four years, TAF and Associates LLC for 10 years, the Social Security Administration for four years. That is a well-diverse career. I don't know how diverse it is, but it's been, you know, you don't think about how long it's been in a career until you start writing it down. So, you know, to see that I've been or was with Taff and Associates for 10 years, so I did criminal defense for 14, is just mind-blowing it sometimes. Like, I can't believe I'm, number one, that old any, now, but um, that is just, that's where my career path took me. It's just very odd. Well, let's start off with the Missouri Public Defender's Office. So let's talk about, if you can tell me about your first trial where the defendant admitted on the stand that he struck the officer but still got acquitted. So I was a brand new public defender. It was my very first case. I'd been practicing law like a month and a half. And I got a, down in the rural part of the state where Farmington, Park uh, Hills, uh, that kind of area, there's a lot of prisons. So we get a lot of prison cases where the guards allege that an inmate struck them, spit on them, you know, struck them with something. And so they get charged with assaulting a, a, an officer. And in this case, the defendant actually testified and he did what I would like to call a Homer Simpson, where, you know, when Homer does something stupid, he goes, oh, and he actually smacked himself on the top of the head, just like Homer Simpson does when he said, oh yeah, I, I hit him. And I was like, oh, we are toast. Fortunately though, the officers weren't that credible and they're, they testified that basically he was doing nothing. They told him, you got to get up and go, and then tried to manhandle him. So they were bullying him, and my client was all of 5'4 and 100 pounds wet, and these two guys were, you know, 200 pound plus six foot. So it really was, you know, Goliath trying to pick on the little guy, and so he ended up getting acquitted. That is one amazing circumstance, especially for admitting that you did do the offense. Yes, yes, it was. I was very surprised, <laughs> put it that way. Well, let's talk about the problem in the out in the county areas with drug mess and in the city heroin that has overwhelmed the system and how the drug court alternatives have taken some of the, that load off of the officers or other areas? Well, when I first started practicing, drug courts were fairly new. And a lot of the out county areas didn't even have a drug called court alternative. The problem with meth and heroin is they usually precipitate other mental health problems or they aggravate them. So folks with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety, 
they will self-medicate because they don't have access, especially in the out-county areas, to mental health facilities and, and drugs and medication and counseling. So when I first started, it was a lot of, you know, people that had either been diagnosed and had never gotten care, or we actually had them diagnosed and realized that they were self-medicating with these, these drugs. And so when drug court started and it came along, it was a great way to funnel people that really are not criminals. They have a disease. They have a medical problem that needs to be dealt with other than going to jail. So I think the drug courts were a great alternative when they started. They have continued, they've grown. Um, St. Louis City has actually uh, implemented a diversion court for younger first time offenders. So even if they don't have a drug problem, someone who's caught riding in a stolen car or with you know kind of theft, that those kind of petty offenses that normally would get probation and then that would be on their record, are given a chance to do the diversion program, get job training, get them back in school, make them productive citizens, and then the case is ultimately dismissed. So it's a win-win for both the community and the person going through these alternative courts. It is a win-win to get them back to their families the way they used to be and not dependent on the drugs and destroying their families or destroying their jobs. It is definitely worth the little investment that's involved with it, for sure. It is very true. I don't know how many times I have sat across from family members who, you know, wanted their loved ones out of jail because they were calling constantly, you know, crying. I'm going to be different. I'm going to I'm going to do it this time. Please just let me out. Please just let me out. And I'm like, don't let them out. They are going to go right back to using and they're going to die. And. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten phone calls after somebody gets out a day or two later and they're like, you're right. They went right back to the streets and they overdosed. It is sad how strong that stuff is that it takes over their lives and their minds. It does. It, it really, it takes over entire families and it really requires a lot of tough love when you get to that point to say, you've got to sit and clean up. And, and what some, at first, what they don't realize is that they're not the only ones in that situation. Their family's hurting just as much as they are. And for them family to finally have enough nerves to get tough, it, they don't realize it, it really does hurt them even more than they think. Right. Well, and families, you know, a lot of times they'll, it starts with lying and then they start stealing from families and they, there's just no trust there anymore. And then when the person, you know, they, they make, the family feel guilty for not helping them. Well, you should help me. You know, I have a problem. Why can't you do this for me? Why am I here? And it takes a lot for a person who's dealing with addiction to really come to terms with it is a problem that they have to deal with and a medical problem they have to deal with. Yes. Thank the idea of whoever come up with it about drug courts for sure. It has been instrumental in probably saving countless lives at this point. So now we can move on to the next one. What is the current state of the St. Louis City Courts and how the Prosecuting Attorney Office files so few cases anymore? Well, ever since Kim Gardner was elected back in 2016, uh, she has tried to clean up the justice system. And one of the ways 
to do that is to deny filing cases for cops who are basically bad apples. There's always, you know, some out there that are just, you know, bad in the barrel, and there's nothing we can do about that. And I think as we're moving forward with the culture of we don't want cops to be the bullies that they have been for the last 20 or 30 years, because the courts have allowed them to do that, you know, when it's scary to think they can go into a room with a defendant, lie about what evidence they have against them, make them all kinds of promises and come out with a confession. And sometimes it's not true, especially the young offenders who don't know any better. And they're like, you're going to go home. Just tell me, just tell me you did it. And then they end up going to prison for the rest of their lives. So I applaud her for taking the stand and it has not been popular, but I, I believe that is why she's filing so few cases at this point. Because of she's been filing so few cases, the and the police do not like her, they have been taking a lot of their guns and drug cases over to the federal system. So the federal system over the last few years has basically become overwhelmed in uh, the Eighth Circuit just because of the number of cases that they have to pick up that were not filed in state court uh, in the city that they are now charging. But the bad news is if it's a gun or a drug case in federal court, you're looking at a substantial amount of time. And if it's a gun and a drug case, there's always a possibility of uh, counts running consecutive. And then there's all kinds of guidelines that the federal courts do that uh, the state courts do not. So it's a more complicated process once your case gets to the feds. I hope, and I mean, I understand that unfortunately in this world and time that there's bad apples and no matter where you go or what profession, I, I know that cities and counties and state try to do their best to, you know, set different tests, uh, physicals, um, psych evaluations and different things to try to weed out the bad apple before they make it in the door. I think um, they, they have been doing that, but the problem is the people who were training the officers, especially in the city, I believe, were the bad apples. So they actually had a task force that the African-American community called the jump out boys. And you can imagine a guy pulling up in a armored vehicle and 20 of them jumping out in full tactical gear and they all are white males with shaved heads. What would you be thinking if, if that was you, you know, your community? So the fact that that was okay for so long is just, it's a tragedy. I would hope, and I, I can't speak for the chief or the assistant chief of St. Louis, but hopefully over the years, like everyone, hopefully they've learned some very valuable lessons that which works and what doesn't work in today's society that just needed to be changed or corrected. And hopefully people are starting to see that in St. Louis, hopefully. I would hope so. And, you know, the police force is there to serve and protect. And I think we've gotten away from that. You know, once upon a time, you know, police officers, they were held in real high esteem. And I think some people still feel that way, but a lot of people don't. 
And they need to build that trust back into the community by not just being bullies and doing stuff because they can. They need to actually be serving justice and trying to help the communities that they're policing and not just being overlords to be afraid of. I definitely believe that community service is definitely a priority for law enforcement, no matter where you live. Because uh, in time, they have learned that, you know, like I said, that some things work, some didn't. Correct, do it a new way. Having said that, a lot of it has to fall back also onto the person also that they're dealing with. Some of that could be, the whole scenario could be changed from the beginning by the first encounter. And it's not everybody that does this, but it's what unfortunately kind of starts the path for it to go downhill to a certain degree, is that if you have contact with law enforcement, it should be respectful on both ends. That is it, very true. It, and I think, who, sorry, go ahead. No, you're fine. Now, the people that, you know, post videos of their encounters and they start out the encounter using swear words, being disrespectful, what do they expect back? You know, no, no person should be treated that way. And if they don't want to be treated that way, they certainly shouldn't be treating the officer that way. And they're proud to show these, like, look what I did. You didn't do anything but make yourself look like a big jerk. And exactly. And then the pursuits, that's another issue. That's a totally another thing that could eliminate a lot of problems from the beginning. Right. Whether you violated the law or you didn't, that's for the courts to decide down the road. But in the meantime, just pull over, cooperate, be respectful. And most likely, I think you'll probably be on your way in probably less than 10 minutes, I would think. Right. Most of the time, what happens is, you know, they'll get pulled over. You know, somebody will get pulled over for a taillight being out or they didn't use their blinker, which, you know, is a pretext, I think, especially in St. Louis City, because they're not pulling me over for not using my blinker, but they're pulling over my clients. So, you know, once that happens, if, you know, you put your hands on the steering wheel, you look forward, you're respectful you don't make what they call furtive movements, which gives the police reason to pull you out of the car and search the car, none of that would happen. Yes, officer, you know, you pull over calmly, you put your hands on the wheel, you look straight ahead, you talk to them calmly, and you're on your way with a probably a warning at that point. I definitely would agree. I, I really do. It, it, it's amazing just the difference of level that brings it at that point of calmness on both parties. Right. Because the officer, you know, I, I sympathize with them because they never know. You don't know what you're going to get when you get up to that window. If it's going to be someone who's pleasant, willing to talk to you in a civilized tone, or it's going to be a gun in your face. I mean, that's something they have to deal with every time they pull over a car. Not knowing. And I'll tell you another part of society that I, I understand people, you know, video recording because things that would have happened over the years uh, for anything in any that you know situation that you would be in. The the issue I have is that if you're going to record it, make sure you specify or state 
Did you just walk into this situation and got it from the beginning or did you walk in the middle of it or towards the end? Because that could be a whole different scenario if they weren't recording it from the beginning of the interaction. It was, you know, change between the officer and the person. Well, in this day and age, so many people know how to edit and cut out and piece together videos because of TikTok and Twitter and, you know, they're going to make themselves look the best they can. I don't know if you could necessarily even believe when somebody puts out something that they say was from the beginning. So true. That's definitely left up for the computer techs for sure. Yeah, way beyond my pay grade on that one. Only one thing I want to add to this subject, Jolene, is that it's like any field, but unfortunately not all officers have any ill intentions whatsoever. They go into the job wanting to do the community service. They want to, they go in to serve and to protect. And this is speaking from my heart uh, that they do want to help people out there. That is their goal to help people out there, not to make things worse, but unfortunately they do have to protect and they do have to sometimes, uh, you know, they have to, whether it's issuing summonses or whether it's issue warnings or unfortunately make an arrest, it's what they unfortunately have to do as part of the job. Yeah, they definitely have a very tough job. And there are a lot of wonderful police officers out there that I thoroughly respect. And there's some that I know that I wouldn't put them past beating people up, filing false evidence, testifying falsely. But again, there's good and bad in every career. So... There is. And if that's unfortunately happening in this day and age, I hope it's not. But if it is, I hope that the people reach out to the proper, whether it's if, if it's involving a city or a county, hopefully they reach out to either the, you know, the Highway Patrol or hopefully the FBI and hopefully can take care of the one bad apple so it doesn't make everybody else look equally as bad. Well, hopefully we'll continue to get some reform and change and the mindset of all the parties will be able to come together to agree that what we need is justice. And, you know, we have to work on both sides to get that. Yes. So a little bit of a less serious note, but still involving the courts. What happened to the St. Louis City scooter program? Uh, If you've been to the city in the last couple of years, they had bikes first. And because people stole the bikes and throw them into the river, they stopped using the bikes. Um, And then they went to electric scooters. So, you know, people down by the arch and all through there would use these electric scooters to go up and down through downtown. And unfortunately, what has been happening in the last year or so is that people have been using those electric scooters to do essentially drive-by shootings. So um, I think it was about a month ago, the city outlawed the electric scooters because they were being used in shootings, which seems, you know, something so innocent and just made for fun and entertainment. It's just a tragedy. It only takes a couple to ruin it for everyone else, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And I I never had a chance to use one of the scooters, but Hopefully they were reasonable, you know, to or they were being rented at the time, other than using it for crime, unfortunately. Yeah, I saw a lot of people using the scooters and, you know, they would have a great time. A lot of kids would get on them and, and tool around. 
they actually went pretty fast. So sometimes if they weren't the best driver, there was some wipeouts. Well, hopefully nobody ended up going to the hospital. Hopefully. Hopefully. But they so could have is- America's Funniest Home Videos, I think. Oh, that, you know, when it happens to you at the given moment, it hurts. But afterwards, as long as you're not seriously hurt, it is usually pretty funny afterwards. That is very true. How is the faith in the St. Louis City justice system as it continues to falter despite the calls for reform? Well, you know, there's been a lot of fighting and uh, pointing of the fingers with the prosecutor and the police force. Uh, over the years, the whole Greitens mess with the governor and having that case go to shambles where the investigator that they were paying privately from the prosecutor's office got federally indicted for <laughs> getting purged, you know, giving uh, perjured testimony and falsifying stuff. It just, it's mind boggling really as to why we can't get on the right track for the city and why they can't work together instead of just pointing the finger at each other um, and making accusations as to why everything's not working. It's because it's the other guy and it takes two to tango. It does. And I often have a feeling and I could be wrong on this, but I have this idea or notion that it's probably all political because they want to uh, be thinking about their next step up the ladder for themselves. And that has a lot to do with it. Am I going to get reelected? Do you know, where am I going to go up in the chain of command? Everybody's kind of a CYA situation. It's all changed over the years is when you elect somebody to go in and do the job, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Well, let's swing over to Taff and Associates. Congratulations to yourself. You have also, you've also, you know, (laughs) <laughs> moved up the ladder in your life and the career. It's awesome to see that. If I was looking for an attorney, what question should I ask them before I hire them? Well, the first thing I would say is don't be fooled by the advertisements. Uh, people that you see on TV, on billboards, on buses, those are the big firms and they churn out a lot of clients, but you don't get necessarily the one-on-one that you would get with more of a boutique firm. So, you know, I would use word of mouth and look at the number of years someone has practiced. And if you ever have an attorney that guarantees an outcome, I would get up and walk away. There are no guarantees in this life except for death and taxes. And no attorney can tell you exactly what's going to happen with your case. It all relies back onto the judge or the jury, doesn't it? Yes, it does. If a person was to get a criminal case, either an associate or the circuit, how are those cases resolved? Well, there's three options that are most commonly known. And we already talked about the fourth, which would be the drug court or diversion court. So you can get a dismissal. That's where the case just doesn't have witnesses or there's evidence problems and they just, the state just can't make the case. The person could plea, and that usually involves some negotiations between their attorney and the state to find a resolution that everyone can agree with. Sometimes that's probation, sometimes that's jail time, prison time. Uh, It kind of runs the gambit. 
And then of course there's a trial. So when you're looking at options as a defendant, you really are making an assessment of risk because you know it would be great if your case got dismissed, there's no risk in that. And then you have to file, figure out, well, is it worth it if I plea or if I wanna go to trial, am I risking more time? Because generally, even though they're not supposed to, uh, courts do hand down heavier sentences after a trial. So, you know, even somebody who's, you know, if it's, you're going to get probation either way, does it really matter if you go to plea or trial? No. If you're getting life or you're getting life, there's no risk. I mean, you're, you're going to get life. It doesn't matter. Go to trial. If you're offered SIS probation or you're going to go to prison for seven years, that's when you really have to weigh your options. And is it worth the risk? of, you know, passing up probation at that point or going to prison if you lose. I would definitely, that would be an easy choice for me if it ever happened, which I hope that it never does, that I would take I the probation too. definitely over the prison. Yeah, but, you know, the other thing they have to do is make what's called a factual basis during a plea. So the state would tell, say, Your Honor, this is what I believe the state would prove if this case were to go to trial. And the person has to agree that that's what happened. So there may be instances where the person says, yeah, I want the plea deal, but they can't make a factual basis. In those instances, we can do a different type of plea where we agree that if we were to go to trial, it would be more likely than not, we would be found guilty, but we actually don't admit to the facts of the case. And so if my memory the, recalls correctly, that would be the Alfred plea? Yes, it would be. Yes, it would be. Awesome. So let's say the person finds an attorney, they hire the attorney, and then they realize that it's they either have a problem with the attorney or it's just not working out between the two. Well, if you hire an attorney that you don't particularly like, you can fire that attorney at any time. So you would ask the attorney to withdraw. They may or may not return some of your money depending on where the case is at and what the status is. Um, if you're really unhappy and it's clearly, you know, you you believe your rights have been violated and the person has violated some rules of the Missouri Ethical Code, you can file a formal complaint with the Missouri Bar. They actually have everything available on their website and you file a complaint and then they have to respond to the complaint and the attorney could be sanctioned, disbarred. There's a whole gambit of things given a warning, but you know, if you're unhappy, reach out to the Missouri Bar and just, just look through the website and see if that's an option that you'd like to take. But always remember you are, you hired that person and you can fire that person. Now, if you are disputing money, you, you know, the representation is over, either they withdrew or the case is over or something happens, they the Missouri Bar has a fee dispute resolution program that gives you a chance to resolve your dispute, dispute either through mediation or arbitration. So they assign uh, an attorney or for a mediation or with an arbitration, it's usually a panel of three, which includes generally two attorneys and a lay person, or, and they're all volunteer. 
and they have nothing to do with your case. They don't know either party. And they basically try to facilitate some kind of agreement or resolution to your case. You know, a lot of these things start with the attorney didn't call me back or the attorney ignored my text. And I think that really could solve a lot of problems if there was just some communication. Because once parties start listening to each other, what I found in, in mediations and arbitrations is, you know, you can point out the this side's view and this side's view and try to make everybody understand the other's point of view, which had they just talked amongst themselves, they probably would have come to the agreement and avoided the whole mess to begin with. So, you know, communication is key. But when your attorney just fails to communicate with you or just says, stop calling me and doesn't do anything, I would definitely look into the fee dispute resolution program, which you can also find on the Missouri Bar website. And to be fair and to be neutral, a lot of that may not be the attorney's fault. It could possibly go back onto their staff, unfortunately, by not informing the attorney or managing the attorney's um, of calendar a little bit better so they can get everything in in a day's time. Well, I would say it's always the attorney's fault because I would never blame my staff for me not being able to get to stuff. And you also have to set realistic expectations when you're hired and tell the client, if I'm in trial, I may not call you back for a couple of days. Or, you know, you can't call me at 3 a.m. and expect me to pick up the phone. You just have to set those boundaries. And once those are set, I, and people, you know, when I was in trial, I would always change my voicemail to an alternative voicemail that said, I'm in trial, I will be, you know, not be able to return your call for a few days. Please forgive me. I will call you as soon as I become available after the jury goes out. And once the jury goes out, I would usually check all my voicemails and start returning calls while I was sitting waiting for the jury. I had nothing else to do but twiddle my thumbs. So might as well, well I am, get some work done. I am very proud that, and that doesn't surprise me with you whatsoever, that you would take full responsibility for you know, being with dealing with the clients and for punctuality and everyone. So hats off to you, Jolene. Thank you. So if we, what is it involved and in we'll switch over to the social security administration part of an attorney advisor. What is involved in the hearings office? So where I work is where the ALJ, the administrative law judge, actually has folks come in and do hearings. So if you're denied disability, then you appeal and you ask for a hearing in front of a judge. So once that happens and the time between appeal and judge hearing is actually getting shorter because we've been doing a good job of getting the numbers down, then once that happens, the case actually comes to me with some instructions from the judge and the judge decides whether the person's disabled, whether they're not, whether they have what we call a later onset date. So they weren't disabled when they said they were, but they became disabled later. Um, sometimes that happens automatically with a change of age because there's different criteria. As you get older, it is obviously easier to become disabled with uh, other things. So when we get to the, our office, the person has already probably seen the field office, which is what you would normally think of is where you go, 
you know, talk about your checks and, and do the initial paperwork. So the field office is where, is where everything starts. And as you know, because of COVID, the field office has been closed since March of 2020. So it's been a long time and we have done hopefully, you know, a really good job at SSA of converting a lot of our things to online hearings, telephone hearings, really pushing that you can file all your paperwork online. You can look at everything you, you have in your file online. MySSA.gov is a great resource if you are getting ready to file for disability or just have questions generally about social security. So, you know, those are the things that we have done in the last couple of years that obviously have changed because of COVID, but we are starting to open back up. Field offices are starting to open up. So, you know, I would encourage people to, if they feel that they are disabled or, you know, they have been hit by COVID and they don't feel they can work anymore to explore those options and benefits and go into your local field office, or again, go to myssa.gov or look at the social security website and try to um, see if there's things that we can help you with. What types of disabilities are there? There's two types. There's a Title II and a Title 16. So if a person has worked and has what we call quarters of coverage, they are insured under Title II and eligible for benefits based on their earnings. Um, people with deceased parents can also, or spouses can also file under their, so the other person's social security as deceased to get Title II benefits. So if you didn't work or you don't, your date, what we call date last insured, expires prior to you becoming disabled, then your only available option is Title 16, which does not require past work. It generally includes children's cases. Um, but in either case, you have to establish that your impairment prevents you from being able to perform work activities. Or with a child's case that they functionally meet or they can't um, they have issues with learning and things like that. It's glad to see that the system is coming back together and being able to process and get people that actually do need the help, the help they need. When I started with the agency, it was almost a two-year wait from the time that the person appealed the field office decision that they weren't disabled to the time they got to a judge for a hearing. And since COVID, we have greatly dropped that number. So I have cases that were appealed eight or nine months ago that are now getting hearings. That is a big difference, especially when people's lives are, you know, involving their homes or cars and being able to just live, you know, have food, let alone to survive. Exactly. A lot of folks rely on family members, um, a lot of charity, and it's unfortunate. Uh, I have a different question for you that I just thought of as we were talking about this subject. I'm sure that the government has in place, and I know you can't elaborate on a lot of it, and I understand that. I would not want to put you in that position, but unfortunately, there is some people in this world that would rather get the free helping than actually go to work and earn a living for them and their family. I, I would hope that I'm sure they do. The state has, or the federal government has safeguards in place uh, still to 
uh, try to weed out some of those so they're not a uh, liability for the taxpayers when they should be working. Yes, and they do. They actually have a specific branch of our office that does nothing but fraud and abuse cases and investigates. They do just like a police officer would do. They go out and they do surveillance. They talk to the person. Um, You'd be surprised how many videos and pictures, you know, the person is jumping into a big truck when they say they can hardly walk. Or, you know, they say, well, I'm going to come in and talk to the field office. And they watch them from the time they leave home to the time they get to the field office and they make multiple stops and they're just fine. And they're going to the stores and they're saying hi to people. And then they get to the field office and they get out a cane and they pretend they're scared and they're, you know, petrified of going out and they never leave their house. So it's very interesting when you see those type of cases. They also investigate, and there actually was a big case that it's still in the court system now where a provider here in the St. Louis area was making fraudulent disability benefit claims and claims towards um, insurance for short-term and long-term disability for major employers in the area. And that they would basically put uh, orders in for all kinds of different testing and falsify results. And, you know, basically they were taking a kickback, say, hey, we will make sure that you get this disability if you pay us X, Y, and Z, and then we're gonna send you for all this stuff and pad your file and make sure you get disability. So that case is still pending, but in there's been lots of those, you know, unfortunately, over the years where someone has tried to game the system. And that is so sad because the system doesn't have money to take care of everybody, let alone the false claims that the poor people that actually need it are having a rougher time because the cases are being probably more scrutinized than they used to be. That is very true. Well, in closing, Jolene, is there anything that I did not cover that you would like to bring up? No, I think we covered everything. Thank you so much for having me again. And I am glad to have you anytime as a guest on TMAC Talks and definitely in the future. Uh, if there's anything that comes up, please let us know. I have the utmost respect for you as an attorney, as a person. I have seen you in action and can say that you represent your clients to the fullest degree with dignity and respect. I appreciate that very much. And once again, thank you for joining us. I do appreciate it. Jolene, you have a good evening. And everyone out there on TMAC Talks, see you. Talk to you next week. TMAC out. <laughs>